This is the Notorious Bakersfield Podcast. I'm Robert Peterson, the host and creator of this podcast that takes a look back at some of Bakersfield's most notorious crimes, events, and characters. Remember, I welcome suggestions for future stories. If you have a story idea, you can contact me through the website, NotoriousBakersfield.com. Click the contact link to send me a message. And while you're at NotoriousBakersfield.com, you can show your support. Click the support link to buy me a cup of coffee. Be sure to follow the Notorious Bakersfield social media pages. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Pictures related to each episode, including this one, are posted to those social media pages. So I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off. Um, I'm going to be working on a couple of projects, other podcasting projects. And uh, I'm going to be traveling to Washington, D.C. I'm on the board a, of a national nonprofit, and we're having our first in-person meeting um, since COVID, and so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, so I'm going to be gone. I'm going to step away for a couple of weeks from the Notorious Bakersfield podcast, and I'm going to hand the reins over to my friend Janet Miller, and she's been working on a story—a story that I kind of turned her on to um, a couple of months ago. I met a young woman at the um, library, and she was looking for an article about her past, about her uh, uh, a situation that she was involved with. And I don't want to tell too much of the story, but after talking to her for a few minutes, it was really um, an inspirational story. I came to know her there in the library. I really um, came to admire her. And what she'd gone through and what she accomplished and and worked through and pushed through in her life. And we never did find that article um, at that time. Um, Then several months later, I think two or three months later, I was at the library and I was looking on through the microfilm of, uh, you know, wasn't related to the subject at all. And I ran across the article that she was looking for. And, but I had no way of contacting her. You know, I just, I don't even think I remembered her name. And so I, I saved the article and then out of the blue, like a few days after this, she contacted me and through uh, Instagram. And so we started communicating. And then when, when I realized I was going to have to step away and I asked Janet to uh, fill in as host. And I kind of told her about this story, and Janet was really excited. So I want to welcome Janet Miller, who's going to fill in for the next couple of episodes of the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. Tell us a little bit about this story. Thank you, Roger. I'm just delighted to be able to host the podcast. Um, And I was really thrilled to meet Ophelia Flores, uh, the the woman who, um, well, her sister had traffics her as a teenager um, and had addicted her to heroin and then traffics her. And uh, Ophelia survived that and now works as an advocate for other survivors. She's really an inspiring person to meet. Um, I, I've enjoyed all my conversations with her. 
Yeah, and so I, I'm looking forward to hosting the podcast for the next couple of weeks. Let's hear a few words of, uh, from Ophelia. The trafficking started when I was 16. But the last time I got in trouble, they were telling me, you know, you got to stop because if you keep getting in trouble, you're just going to go to Lerdo. I was arrested quite a few times. And I don't remember any CPS involvement. I don't remember anybody saying, why is this kid on heroin? That day I was talking to my younger sister and we had both been talking that we were tired. We didn't want to do this anymore. We didn't want to, um, we didn't, we didn't want to do it. We didn't, we didn't want to be like this. We didn't want to be like her. And we literally walked around and to the sheriff's department. And we told, I, I remember walking to the front and I really didn't know what to say. And so there was this woman and I just said it, you know, and then they right away rushed to get somebody, but they did get us from the waiting area and took us back and separated us. And I gave my statement, my sister gave her statement and he just said, okay, now I have to arrest you. And telling that story in Ophelia's voice is important and, and her telling us what she went through, what she endured, and uh, how she rose above it. So I think that's that's important. Exactly. There's a lot of, there are a lot of twists and turns and a lot of uh, unexpected moments in her story. So it, it's, it was very interesting to talk to her and then also really interesting to get her insights and perspectives. Um, She's she's just an amazing person. So with that, um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what brings well, you to podcasting. I grew up in Bakersfield um, in the 60s and 70s, and um, I live now in Northern California, but I still have family and friends in Bakersfield. Um, I'm very nostalgic about Bakersfield. That uh, what brings me to the story, uh, well, and it's also how you and I met and how we crossed paths. I'm working on a, a different project about a friend of mine in high school who was sexually trafficked. I was even more interested in Ophelia's story because they had so, some parts of the story are similar, some parts are different, and I just learned a lot from her. So. Yeah, in in working on that, um, a friend of mine I, I was talking to, she said, "Oh, you have to, you have to listen to this podcast, Notorious Bakersfield," and and the first one that I listened to was about Freddie's Top of the Hill, hill where uh, my parents used to take me there. Like I I just remember being in junior high school, and so it's it's so funny to hear these stories about places that you remember and. Uh, you know, things that you grew up with. Um, so, yeah, and then you and I reached, you know, I think you reached out to me and we got in touch. And uh, it's been nice talking to you about my project and hearing about your podcast. And I've become a big fan of Notorious Bakersfield. We've we've bounced ideas and, and stuff off of each other. And, and I've enjoyed that um, interaction with you. Yeah, you know, one thing I love about Notorious Bakersfield is that you're so sensible and grounded. And I think that is your personality. I've come to realize that 
you know, you refuse to theorize ahead of the facts. And I love that. You'll talk about all the possibilities, but you don't jump to any conclusions. <laughs> and I, I <laughs> it's the it's the sensible podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> and that's kind of interesting when we uh, crossed paths. It was online. We've never met in person. It's always no. always been over the phone or or this is the first time we've seen each other actually. Besides right. yeah. So in the Zoom meeting. Yeah, yeah, we're yeah. having a Zoom yeah. meeting. Right yeah, we're now. on yeah. Zoom now. So, but thank you for the opportunity to to guest host. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it too. I'm looking forward to having a couple couple weeks off. <laughs> 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 I'm going to be working on stories, notorious uh, future, notorious Bakersfield stories, and these other projects, and traveling to Washington D.C. Oh, and I'm gonna I'll let people know if you remember the episode about. Truxton Beale, um, that I did about Truxton Beale, his family own, um, the Decatur house, which is in Washington, DC. And I've been to Washington, DC a lot. And I never realized that. And it's right in Lafayette square, right near the white house. And I'm planning on taking a tour of the Decatur house and, and I'm going to live stream some of it while I'm in, in Washington, DC. So if you're on notorious Bakersfield, Facebook, I'll live stream the tour or a little bit about the Decatur house. And I just think it's interesting that somebody so connected to Bakersfield, Truxton Beale um, and his family own a house just right across from the white house. I think that's kind of fascinating. So it is fascinating. It's, uh, you know, it's amazing to me that so many roads lead back to Bakersfield. So many threads are from Bakersfield. Um, yeah. And yeah, you've done, I can't believe how many podcasts you've done. And then, and, and it's not always about crime either. It's, it's often just about these interesting historical aspects yeah. of Bakersfield. Tune in um, next week and you can hear Ophelia's story and Janet Miller will be filling in with um, the Notorious Bakersfield podcast. Thank you, Robert. Since starting Notorious Bakersfield, I've been asked numerous times if I've ever come across any crimes with Mafia connections. I'm not sure this story is Mafia connected, but it certainly involved an organized crime ring. 39-year-old Guy Leverboy Mendolia was returning home on Monday, August 31st, 1964. It was 1.30 in the morning when he pulled his car into the driveway of his suburban Chicago home. The new Cadillac idled in the driveway as Mendolia clicked the remote control to raise the garage door. Once the door was fully opened, Mendolia slowly drove his vehicle into the garage. He reached down and turned off the ignition switch. As soon as Mendolia reached for the door handle, five shotgun blasts rang out. The shots came from the driveway to the rear of the car. When the volley of shots ended, Mendolia was still sitting up but was slumped to his right side. He suffered fatal wounds to the rear of his neck, upper shoulders, and the back of his head. The gunshots awakened neighbors in this usually quiet Chicago neighborhood. Police were on scene within minutes. 
As detectives comb the crime scene for clues, Mendolia's father, Guy Mendolia Sr., arrived at the home. The elderly Mendolia pleaded with investigators to let him see his son. They lowered the garage door and denied him access to the area inside. Mendolia Sr. banged on the garage door, begging to at least just see his son. When police opened the garage door and wheeled the decedent out on a stretcher, Mendolia Sr. flung himself on the body. He sobbed, Who would kill my son? Who would do this? The family claimed Guy Mendolia Jr. was employed as a truck driver. But if you looked at his rap sheet, you couldn't help but conclude that Mendolia had less reputable employment. He had been arrested 75 times, ranging from burglary, highway robbery, and larceny. He'd served seven years in prison for an armed robbery, convicted of stealing $100,000 worth of merchandise from a jewelry salesman in Nashville. At the time of his death, when he was blasted away in his suburban Chicago garage, Mendolia was out on bail, charged with a burglary on the other side of the country in downtown Bakersfield. He was one of four men charged with burglarizing and robbing Wickersham jewelry of over $6,000 in watches. This is the Wickersham Heist. Longtime Bakersfield jewelry store owner Forrest Dickey had been busy working in his establishment long past closing time. The jewelry store was located a half block west of Chester Avenue on 18th Street, right next to the Seal Building that sits on the northwest corner of Chester and 18th Street. It was a Sunday evening, January 26, 1964, it was chilly, about 45 degrees, and it looked like the fog was getting ready to roll in for the night. A little before 6.30 p.m., Mr. Dickey decided to call it a day. The jeweler went about his routine of locking the display cases throughout the store. Once he was satisfied that everything was safe and secure, he stepped out the front door to the shop onto the sidewalk of 18th Street. Mr. Dickey locked the front door and pulled the handle to make certain it was secure. Mr. Dickey and his family lived in Westchester, so he often commuted to and from his jewelry store by walking the few blocks. Mr. Dickey walked away from his business west on 18th Street towards I Street. When he reached I Street, the businessman turned and walked north along I Street. He walked past the Wall Street Alley. This route would take Mr. Dickey past his nearest competitor, the Wickersham Company. Wickersham's was located on the southeast corner of I and 19th Street. When Mr. Dickey reached Wickersham's, he noticed a man inside the store. He didn't recognize the man in the dimly lit store. He was inside carrying a cardboard box. Mr. Dickey assumed he was an employee of Wickersham's. Mr. Dickey wasn't suspicious until he reached the corner of 19th and I Street. 
That's when he saw a second man standing just inside the front door of Wickersham's. Noticing the second man, Mr. Dickey slowed his pace. Something didn't seem right about this situation. So Mr. Dickey deviated from his planned route. He turned the corner to walk past Wickersham's front door to get a better look at the two men inside. Mr. Dickey took note that both men appeared to be in their late 30s or early 40s, and both were wearing khakis. One was wearing a light-colored jacket. Mr. Dickey continued walking east on 19th Street towards Best Drugs. When he was about halfway between I and Chester Avenue, a maroon Mercury pulled up to the curb in front of Wickersham's, and the two men Mr. Dickey witnessed inside exited the store, one carrying the cardboard box. Both jumped into the car. This raised Mr. Dickey's suspicions. He realized then that he may have witnessed a robbery of one of his business competitors. The vehicle sped past Mr. Dickey, and he was able to get a partial license number. Mr. Dickey hurried toward the payphone at Vest Drugs to report what he'd witnessed. When police arrived, they discovered the burglars were able to gain entry by removing the cylinders from the locks in the front door of Wickersham and Company. Mr. Dickey was able to give investigators the description of the two suspects in the getaway car, including the partial license plate number. A few minutes after this information was broadcast on police radios, a patrolman spotted a vehicle matching the description. This car was able to evade the officer. But it wasn't long until the suspect's getaway car was found abandoned in the 1000 block of R Street. Police characterized the car as being souped up and equipped with several features not normally found on vehicles. The automobile had an air raid siren and kill switches that turned off the tail lights, brake lights, and license plate lights. Inside the car, investigators also discovered a bag that contained sophisticated and specialized burglary tools. These things indicated to Bakersfield authorities that the criminals involved in this heist weren't amateurs. They were well-prepared and organized. They were pros. When a records check was run on the license plate, it was discovered that both the registered owner and the address were fictitious. But the check did reveal the vehicle was first purchased in Illinois. The initial value of the loss was estimated to be $10,000, but was later revised down to $8,000. Then that was lowered to $6,000. These men who robbed Wickersham jewelers may have been professional criminals, but they made an amateur mistake. Besides leaving their burglary tools in their getaway car, they also left their fingerprints. This heist occurred on January 26, 1964. Bakersfield police, along with the help of the FBI, worked on this case for months. They were building their case mainly on the fingerprint evidence left on and around and in the getaway car. That was the first step to figuring out who needed to be questioned. 
Once investigators had sufficient evidence, they brought their findings before the Kern County Grand Jury. In late May 1964, the grand jury issued indictments against four individuals, Guy Mendolia, Emil Crovetti, Leo Riccio, and Lester Harris. Three of those individuals, Crovetti, Riccio, and Harris, were arrested and arraigned on multiple charges related to the Wickersham jewelry burglary. All three were able to pay their bail amounts, and they were released from jail. One of those individuals indicted, Guy Mendolia, remained at large. After two weeks of being on the run, Mendolia surrendered to the FBI in Chicago. Mendolia was arrested, but he was able to make his bail. Meanwhile, Emil Crovetti, the suspected ringleader of this band of criminals retained criminal defense attorney Morris Chain. Remember on an earlier episode I said Morris Chain was the lawyer you wanted if the police walked in on you holding a smoking gun, standing over a dead body with bullet holes in it? Evidently, Crovetti had heard about Morris Chain's reputation too. True to form, Chain didn't waste any time putting up a spirited defense for his client. Chain challenged every move District Attorney Al Letty made. Then, on July 23, 1964, a jewelry store in North Hollywood was burglarized and robbed. During the Los Angeles Police Department's investigation of this robbery, they discovered the M.O. was identical to the Wickersham heist in Bakersfield. Guess who was arrested for this robbery in North Hollywood? Emil Crovetti. So while he was out on bail for the Wickersham case in Bakersfield, Emil Crovetti continued burglarizing and robbing jewelry stores. Then something happened that changed the entire legal strategy for every defendant in the Wickersham case and the North Hollywood case. Guy Mendolia, the co-defendant who turned himself into the FBI, was gunned down and killed in his garage in Chicago. How did Mendolia's death change everything? It automatically gave all of the other co-defendants a scapegoat. Emil Cravetti's trial for the Wickersham case began on November 30th, 1964, Morris Chain represented the defendant and Kern County's very own district attorney, Al Letty, prosecuted the case in Judge Borton's courtroom. After hearing opening statements for both sides, the jury was excused for the weekend. Over that first weekend of the trial, Morris Chain took in a Bakersfield College football game. While at the game, the respected criminal defense attorney suffered a heart attack. Fortunately for Morris Chain, the heart attack wasn't fatal, but it was serious, and his condition threw the entire trial in doubt. Milton Younger, Morris Chain's partner, appeared in court to inform Judge Barton about Chain's condition. Of course, Judge Barton wanted to know how long it would be until Morris Chain was able to get back into the courtroom to resume his duties to his client, Emil Crivetti. Younger didn't have that information, so Judge Borton scheduled a hearing in a couple of days in order for Milton Younger to obtain 
that information from Chain's doctors. At that hearing, Younger informed Judge Borton that the doctor wouldn't release Chain until at least February. This was the first week of December, so that would mean at least two months. Judge Borton felt this was unacceptable, so the judge appointed Milton Younger to be Crovetti's attorney. However, both Younger and Crovetti objected to this. Crovetti argued that he should be represented by the attorney he hired, Morris Chain, and Younger agreed. Judge Borton was unwavering on this decision, and the trial resumed with Milton Younger as the uh, defendant's attorney. I won't get into the details of the trial. Remember I said Guy Mendolia's death provided all the defendants a scapegoat? Basically, Crovetti's entire defense was that Guy Mendolia, the dead guy, threatened him to take part in the Wickersham heist. Not only threatened Crovetti himself, but his entire family. Either you do this job or I'll kill you and your family. That was their entire defense. After four weeks, the trial concluded. Emil Crivetti was convicted on three felony counts, grand theft, second-degree burglary, and conspiracy. Judge Borton sentenced him to 20 years to life in prison. The other two defendants in this case, Riccio and Harris, were both convicted on various counts related to the Wickersham case. You don't think that's the end of the story, right? No. Emil Crivetti appealed his conviction based on the fact that he was denied representation of his choosing. He claimed Judge Borton's decision to not delay his trial to give his lawyer time to recover violated his constitutional rights. The U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected this argument, but the California Supreme Court sided with the defendant and ordered Crivetti to be retried. Okay, here's the interesting part. The California Supreme Court made this ruling in October 1966. By this time, Crovetti had spent 19 months in prison. On November 1, 1966, the Bakersfield Californian published a story that said that Kern County DA was going to retry the case April 16, 1967. Then there was nothing ever printed in the Californian about this case ever again. Nothing. It's just, it just disappeared. And that seemed really odd to me. Let me tell you, the Bakersfield Californian covered the story extensively. More articles were published about this case than any other case I've ever covered. Initially, I thought maybe Cravetti made a deal with the DA to plead guilty and he was sentenced to time served. I mean, he'd already served 19 months, but it still seemed odd if that was what happened. Why didn't the Californian have a story about it? I don't know. I can't answer that. Maybe the reporter who covered the courts went on vacation or was fired. I don't know. There could be a million reasons. But I decided to research newspapers outside of Bakersfield and discovered a little more about Emil Crivetti that the Bakersfield Californian never covered. Remember the North Hollywood jewelry store robbery Emil Crivetti was suspected of being involved with? The robbery that occurred while he was out on bail? Emil Crivetti was a busy man while he was out on bail for the Wickersham robbery. He was also involved in a string of truck hijackings. Uh, 
1967, after after getting out of the whatever was going on in Kern County, <laughs> Emil Crivetti, along with 13 other men, were convicted for stealing shipments of photography equipment and silver bullion worth more than $1 million. But the Bakersfield, California, never reported these crimes. They reported the North Hollywood robbery, but they didn't report these truck hijackings. Since these crimes involved interstate commerce, he was tried and convicted in United States District Court. I suspect, I don't know for certain, but I think Crivetti did make a plea deal and pled guilty for the Wickersham robbery for time served and went to Chicago to face the music for the truck hijackings. That's the only thing I can come up with. Why the Californian didn't cover it, I don't know. For the majority of the rest of his life, Emil Crivetti continued getting in trouble with the law. He passed away at age 68 in 1992 in Chicago. Resources used to research this story, the Bakersfield Californian, the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, caselaw.com, People versus Crovetti. As you heard towards the beginning of this episode, I'm taking a couple of weeks off, so I won't be back next week, but Janet Miller will, and she'll tell you another notorious Bakersfield story. I'll see you in a couple weeks. Take care.